podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. Here on the podcast, we chat with experts across many disciplines of science to find all the ways our interconnected world is being reshaped by the COVID-19 pandemic. Find us on our website at dearpandemic.org. I'm your host, Malia Jones, hybrid social infectious disease epidemiologist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory and editor-in-chief at Dear Pandemic. Today, I'm gonna be talking with Dr. Lindsay Leininger of Dartmouth College, Tuck School of Business, taking questions from our followers. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to live Q&A on Dear Pandemic. I'm Malia Jones, Editor-in-Chief at Dear Pandemic, and I'm here this morning with Dr. Lindsay Leininger who is one of my fellow nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic and also a professor at Dartmouth University. Lindsay, how are you this college. morning? College, we're college. Oh, sorry, college, college. Um, one of my colleagues watched us last week and was like, oh, Dr. Jones used the U word. Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I genuinely thought it was university. I stand corrected. No, it's an inside baseball thing, but okay. yeah. <laughs> I'll never hear the end of it if, if, you know, I, if the U word is thrown out again. Fair enough. Fair How enough. are you today, Dr. Jones? It's so lovely to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you as well. I'm doing pretty well. How's school going? School is great. Thank you. My little kiddos are at their school in person, spending a lot of time outdoors. That's um, awesome. I wrapped up an online executive class recently and all's good. It's getting a little chilly here. So I pulled out my fleece vest. I never owned a fleece vest before moving to New England, but it's a New England thing for sure. It's the uniform. So I, this is my first inaugural fleece vest outing for the season. We also <laughs> bought a Subaru. We have gone all in on Northern New England. How about you and Madison? Yeah, well, here in Madison, the uniform is um, you're really not like ready for Madison until you've got there are three kinds of winter. Um, there's regular winter there's oh my god what is happening to me winter and then there's the polar vortex which as you know requires like a head-to-toe sleeping bag walking sleeping bag situation so um, it has started to get cooler here but it's not winter levels of cool yet I should send you a fleece vest (laughs) (laughs) people here wear those like puff vests yeah those are big here too Well, we're here today to chat about the weather and also to answer follower questions. And I want to start with a huge thank you to our followers who have submitted tons of great questions again this week. We really appreciate all your contributions so much to um, give us the fodder for what it is we do here at Dear Pandemic, answering questions. So Lindsay, I was looking through the questions and I noticed that quite a few of the topics are things that we have already addressed, including hotel room safety, kids and COVID, ergonomics, managing risk in a household where the children go back and forth between separated parents' homes. So how can people search our 500 plus posts to get some of these answers? 
Thank you for that question, Dr. Jones. We've had a big week for our scrappy little uh, educational campaign with a big heart. We are celebrating six months and the launch of our website, dearpandemic.org. It has all of the content we've created posted in a really easily searchable format that hopefully will make it easier for our community to search stuff that we've written about before. It's a really celebratory launch for us. And I'll add the personal note. Part of what makes it even sweeter for me is that my dear, dear roommate from college we were randomly assigned as freshman year roommates. And after college, she went and did formal training at RISD, the design school, and she designed it. So she did. Mary Jo Valentino, you're our hero of the week. Thank you, Mary Jo. It's beautiful. The website is great. Again, it's dearpandemic.org. And you can go, um, if you have a question, you can search to see if we've already maybe answered that question. And you can also, the link to submit a question is right there on the website as well. So check it out. It's pretty cool. So we wish we could answer every single one of the questions. So let's just get to it. I have the first question I have for you, Lindsay, is Heather from Ann Arbor, Michigan asks, my friend and her family are part of our bubble. My friend is a teacher and is teaching in person. Her daughters are also attending in-person school. Does this mean we cannot see them any longer? What do you think? Let's talk about bubbles. Yeah, so that's, um, I think this is going to be kind of a two-part answer, Heather. So thank you for sending that in. So I'm going to let Malia respond with some hardcore bubble epidemiology, if you will. But I'm going to talk about this from a risk management perspective. And this is personal for me because I'm facing a really similar situation in my own life. So Heather, like I'm just coming from a place of empathy um, with what you're juggling right now. And look, I mean, we have to we have to be honest with ourselves here. Whenever we increase the people with whom we're connecting, all those exposures increase with them. That is a hard truth. Now that doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong thing to do. So my family has hired a wonderful sainted nanny with two young children who are coming to our house. And that means that we face the same exposures now that they do, and they face our exposures too. So we have grown our bubble, which is not a risk-free activity. But for me to be able to work, both to support my family and also to support this community at Dear Pandemic that I love so much, it was a risk I was willing to take. So there's, there's kind of the infection control piece of it, which I know Malia will be able to speak to, but then there's also the like balancing risks in your life. And you have to take both of those into consideration. And, and my comments will end with the other fact that always needs to be top of mind, but that we find it dear pandemic sometimes slips notice. You need to always have the amount of circulating disease in your community top of mind too, when you make these trade-offs. So we can bubble up with our nanny and her family to the best of our ability. We can do everything possible, but if the community transmission is high, the risk gets higher too. So Dr. Jones. That was actually the only thing that I was going to add. You know, I think the way to think about um, your bubble, one way to think about your bubble is that 
the people in your bubble, whoever they're exposed to, you are also exposed to. That's what it means to be in a bubble with someone. And so, you know, if the people in your bubble have high exposure, then, then you have relatively high exposure too. And that might be okay because you may need to take on that risk in order to go to work and, you know, do the other essential things in your life. That said, you know, the, if, if there's no disease circulating in your community, then there's no chance anyone in your bubble or the people they're exposed to are going to be in contact with the disease, right? There's, if there's no disease circulating, there's no risk. So the, you know, how risky is your bubble? It's a really tough question to answer because we don't know how much disease is circulating where you are. And that's just a calculation that you're gonna have to make for yourself. And I would say that the first thing you should be considering is how much disease is going around. Here in Madison, we're experiencing a substantial spike in cases right now. And so I am being a lot more cautious about who's in my bubble. Malia, like you said it, so respect, like you sound like a respectable scientific authority. So I'm just going to like be a little punchier here, right? I mean, I think what we say over and over again about these really hard calculations is that there's no easy answer, only really crappy trade-offs. Yep. So know what's going on in your community, know what's going on within your bubble, which is the people to whom you're exposed and balance that against the needs to feed your family. Yep. I have said so many times this year, 2020, hashtag no good options. No good options. That's perfect. (laughs) So um, you want to move on to the next one, Mary Beth from New Jersey? Yes. And I'm asking this to you, right? Yep. So I have it written down because I, I liked Mary Beth's wording. So I want to be sure I get it right. Okay. So is it true the virus is losing potency and maybe mutating to a much milder illness? And if this is the case, could it just die out? Yeah, terrific question. Viruses do mutate all the time. And so it's very common for a virus to change over time. When they invade a host, when they um, get into our cells and make millions and millions or even billions of copies of themselves, there's a lot of opportunity for the virus's genetic code to shift. And that's called genetic drift. In fact, the mutation that allowed SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, to infect humans in the first place was some kind of a genetic mutation that, that changed it to have this new capacity to infect human beings. There are geneticists who are studying what's happening with SARS-CoV-2 and show that it's already undergone some genetic drift. But so far, there's not any evidence that that has changed how it infects people or how serious the disease is that that you get when you are infected with SARS-CoV-2. In fact, there was a great opinion piece from Edward Holmes, who's an evolutionary biologist in Australia, which I'll put in the links. In his assessment, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a relatively slow mutator. So it's not undergoing like really rapid genetic drifts. He says that for an RNA virus, SARS-CoV-2 is in the slow lane of evolution. (laughs) That said, it could... It could mutate to a different uh, form. And some scientists think that that's actually what happened with the 1918 influenza pandemic. After a couple of waves, it mutated to a form that was not as um, dangerous. 
There's not a lot of agreement on that. You know, in 1800 years ago, we didn't have great electron microscopes or genetic <laughs> studies or have any clue what RNA was. So it's a, there's a lot of speculation about what really did go down in 1918. But some scientists think that it mutated to a less dangerous form. And that's why the pandemic died out. That said, you know, will that happen with SARS-CoV-2? We don't know. It could. That maybe is what's going to happen is it mutates, but there's not a real good reason to think that it wouldn't mutate the other way and actually become more effective at infecting its hosts and become more deadly. So the answer to this is basically that we don't know. It's a, it's an interesting feature of viruses that they mutate all the time and that sometimes that does change the way that they infect us. So I'll put the link to that New York Times opinion piece in the in the comments. It was really an interesting one. So I've got a question for you, Lindsay. TJ from Sacramento, California asks us, everything fun for teens is closed to keep them safe. Movies, bowling, roller skating, laser tag, and so on. Can teens safely skateboard in outdoor skate parks? What do you say? This is a great question and it's on a lot of people's minds, including my own. And if you'll give me the grace, I'm gonna start with a story. I gave a big community rah-rah talk at the Tech School of Business about a week and a half ago with my dean, well-attended, people really liked it, and we were all one big community keeping each other safe. The very next night, there was a rager in the tuck dorms. (laughs) So I lead with this story because we're dealing with a balance here of getting teens and young people to socialize more safely so that they don't throw the proverbial rager in the dorms. So this is all about safer socializing with teens. And and again, you know, there's this risk benefit calculation that's so deeply personal to your context. So one, it will depend on if there's a raging outbreak in your area. Two, it will depend upon your family, your teenager, needs and three it will depend upon the people who they're skateboarding with needs but i personally in my context really like the idea of teens skateboarding together in an outdoor <laughs> skate park right and and i can only speak from my own context which is in a place with low circulating disease count but i think that that is a great way for teens and young people to be more safe about socializing than sitting in somebody's basement, getting drunk and becoming more inhibited, right? So I think it's all about safer socializing and and Malia, I'll, you know, turn it to you. I agree with you. I think, um, you know, one of the things that's really challenging right now is trying to give teenagers and young adults the options and make it possible for them to do the things that they want to do and need to do from a, you know, social developmental perspective in a way that also, doesn't promote disease transmission. One of the reasons that Madison is facing the spike in cases that we have right now is because we've just brought the undergraduate student population back to school for in-person instruction. And we're seeing cases that are spreading in, you know, private party contexts. And, you know, honestly, that was really predictable. That's what people come to college to do. Uh, You have all these people who came to college to experience the, you know, important and fun social life of college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so it's no surprise that that's what they're doing. I think what would be helpful is if we can give young people 
some safer options to actually engage in those activities. And so skateboarding in an outdoor skate park is a great solution. I think that's, you know, a relatively very safe uh, activity that would fill a lot of the, the social needs that they have. And so, yeah, thumbs up on skateboarding and outside skate parks. And I would say also hanging out on the swings at the playground, um, whatever other outdoor activities that your kids want to do in small groups in general, I would say that's a really good way to mitigate the risk. And can I, can I close with uh, circling back to my story at Tuck? So one of the things that I, I think in terms of a point of process that I think is really helpful for parents, even in loco parentis folks like us at universities, the student government of Tuck proactively reached out to me and said, can we brainstorm together about safer socializing protocols that we can talk about with the deans and get some sign off on? So I do think bringing young people into the decision making process can sort of help get some buy in that might be helpful. It would be a really good idea to give undergraduate students a place to go that's outdoors to make it, I don't know, make the quad reservable or something so that kids have a place to go. And when they wanna have a party, cause they're gonna have the party one way or the other, that that party is happening in, in some kind of an outdoor context that can mitigate risk. The last question we're gonna be able to take today is from Katie from Winnetka, Illinois. Shout out to Winnetka, I lived there for 10 years. <laughs> Chicago suburb. Chicago suburb. So Katie asks us, she's curious if the nerdy girls and their families plan to get the vaccine as soon as it becomes available. Is there any scientific reason at all to wait? So what do you think, Lindsay? I'm going to speak from my context and then yeah. Melissa is going to speak from the nerdy girls uh, quick polling, canvassing of the nerdy girls context. So from my context, absolutely. I, I know a lot about regulatory science in the sense of like what the data require, like how the trials are designed. And I have a lot of confidence in the design of phase three trials and the vetting, like the paces that the FDA puts it through. Absolutely. My husband and I are both college professors, colleges, military bases are higher risk environments, just demographically. We've got a, young, a lot of young people and a lot of old people together in a densely you know, populated space, which is just like a tinder fire kind of situation. If a spark gets in, hands up, I will get the vaccine and, and have my kids do so too. Yeah. So I did, I polled the nerdy girls informally to ask what their choices are going to look like. Personally, I will get the vaccine also as soon as supplies allow, even knowing that, you know, I think the subtext of this question is about how much do we know about the safety of the vaccine, given that it's going to be brand new, right? And so even knowing that those phase four, the long-term observations will still be in progress at the time that the vaccine is first released, I think there's really good evidence already that having COVID-19 comes with some pretty serious long-term health risks. And in my estimation, those very likely outweigh the mostly unknown risks of the vaccine. When we, I study vaccine hesitancy, and I think one of the things that happens here is that when we think about unknown risks, our brains tend to go straight to the worst case scenarios and make them very personal, right? There's uh -huh. a lot of like fear that gets wrapped up in that, in that calculation. But in reality, what we know from, from other vaccines is that those risks are probably both really small and or minor, 
uh, health risks and also rare. So for example, one of the, the common risks, side effects of the influenza vaccine is to have an achy muscle at the injection site, which you know, in the grand scheme of things is no big deal. More serious risks from having the flu vaccine do exist, but they are extremely rare. Uh, in fact, they're orders of magnitude more rare than dying of influenza. 30,000 people die of influenza every year in the United States. And the serious vaccine side effects each year number in the dozens. So they're just not even on the same scale, right? So um, to sum all of that up, in my estimation, those unknown risks, I think are much less important to me than the known risks of having COVID-19. And so, yeah, I will get the vaccine as soon as it's available. But this turns out to actually be a more complicated question than it seems on the surface, because it's baked into it. There's this other question about availability and who is priority to get the vaccine. And so when the vaccine is released, it won't be available to every person in the United States all on the same day, right? There's going to be some kind of priority in terms of the rollout. And so um, some age groups or risk categories will have higher priority to get it first. And a couple of the nerdy girls said that they would wait until the supply was adequate because they are low priority in terms of their own risk profile. Uh, so they're, they're gonna hold off and, and um, not demand to have it first because they would rather have higher risk groups getting it first. And you know they'll be second in line in terms of um, their need to get it. They also said they'll get it as soon as supply allows. So, so there's that to consider. And then there's this one other complicating factor, which is that one of the nerdy girls and her whole family actually had COVID. And so she might not need to get the vaccine in order to have immunity to the disease. So that's kind of an unknown at this point. And, you know, I think that's just going to be an involving question for her and her family, whether there's actually, um, whether it would confer any protective effect at all to get the vaccine will depend a little bit on that genetic drift question that we were tackling earlier, and also on waning immunity issues that are still mostly unknown at this point. Which is like the hot issue in science. It is, yes. It is the burning question right now. Is yeah, it's probably the most important factor that influences our ability to get to herd immunity, is, is how long does immunity last? Another important factor is actually how much genetic drift does the virus undergo. The reason that you have to get a flu shot every year is because the influenza virus is really messy replicator. And so it, it's always changing its genetics a little bit. And so last year's flu vaccine is really only partial coverage for this year's flu strain. And Malia, I am, I am not a virologist, right? So I have to listen to the virologist, but I, one of the meta or not, not a metaphor, but one of the descriptors that a virologist I like a lot um, uses is like, oh yeah, sloppy coronavirus. Uh -huh. That's his phrase. And so he's expecting a sloppy coronavirus immune response right. if it behaves like prior coronaviruses. Right. Yeah. So this is, you know, there are a lot of unknowns still at this point in terms of these basic scientists. I should say, I'm also not a virologist. I'm just like a a virology fan, I guess. Um, Me too. <laughs> I wish I was a virologist. <laughs> I don't wish I was a virologist, but I do like- I probably don't either. Twiv. Yeah. For those who might be virology geeks, um, TWIV, This Week in Virology is, is uh, 
it's my favorite coronavirus podcast. That and Michael Osterholms. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. I also want to end with just a comment that our thoughts as a group are with the people who are experiencing disruptions from the fires on the West Coast. It's really, I'm from California and it is just really heartbreaking to see what's going on out there. I know people are really struggling to deal with yet another curveball that 2020 has thrown at us. So be safe out there and stay sane and we will see you next week for more Q&A. Thanks for being here. Thank you. If you have a question, you can submit it to the question box, which is located on the Dear Pandemic website, dearpandemic.org. We'll see you next week. If you have a question, you can submit it on our website at dearpandemic.org. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash dearpandemic. Twitter at Dear Pandemic or Instagram at Dear underscore Pandemic. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.